You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a major difference between the UK and the US is that the prime minister can ask for election anytime. He just has to get into a car, drive over to see the newly crowned King Charles III, ask him for an election, and then they go. Pleased to have on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics a frequent guest, Stephen Byrne, formerly of What M Politics. Stephen, how do you think you would identify yourself now? Recovered podcaster. Recovered podcaster. Recover, I think you say recovering because as, as is evidently <laughs> true, you're never fully off off the hook. <laughs> I always enjoyed What M Politics. It's still up there, right? Is the episodes still are still up there, yeah. If you put in give a search for What M Politics, you can still find them on our host site, uh, Headstuff. Well, great. And and from Stephen's perch in Ireland, he is able to look down upon the events in London yeah. with great hindsight, foresight and sight and uh, talk to us about all things UK and UK politics. And once in a while, I like to um, to do that. Give the listeners in who where the show is principally about American politics, but I follow UK politics a lot. Give you a little insight to what's going on across the pond, as it were, to use the overused cliche. When last we talked, so we left the conservatives in, with a majority and Boris Johnson in as the prime minister. And they still have that majority, but they don't seem to have that majority in a moral sense just uh, right now. And and I made the prediction that Boris is going to be here to stay. There's no way he's stepping down as prime minister. So it shows you what I know. What's your general sense now of this, where we, where we left it with the conservatives in power and Boris looking like just a British political phenome that couldn't be stopped to where we are today. I I don't precisely remember what I said last time, but I think I was still just as optimistic as you that he would still be there, or rather sure that the he would just remain the Teflon prime minister and whatever mm-hmm. people threw at him just wouldn't stick. But unfortunately for him, uh, eventually it did stick enough. So I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, effectively the, the scandal that took him down was a massive scandal surrounding parties. And when I say parties, I don't just mean a few people sitting around a coffee table having some tea. I mean, they were having essentially raves in number 10 Downing Street, the COVID lockdown, which was effectively one of the worst impact. Uh, the UK were, were impacted far worse than most other European countries in terms of people that got ill and people that died. The government mm-hmm. was telling people to stay at home. Um, people couldn't go to the funerals of their family members, to use um, a case that's often brought out. And while that was going on, it turned out a year or two later that in Downing Street, they were ignoring all that. They were bringing in wine by the suitcases um, for some of these celebrations. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices. Inquiries happened, things were revealed, and it turns out Boris Johnson was, was deep in the middle of all of them. With hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. Eventually, that did, that did take him down. It's actually, it's gotten so bad for Boris that he was called up in an inquiry by one of the, um, it's a relatively new committee in the House of Commons. It's um, effectively to, to keep the conducts of MPs as clean as possible. They investigated him for lying to the House, which is considered one of the mortal sins. But Boris Johnson doesn't consider that to be as as important a principle to carry. So he was effectively caught lying about the nature of these parties while he was still prime minister. And he quits as an MP since after he resigned. But since then, he has actually also been banned from the House of Commons. So even if he was to wish to try and mount a comeback, you'd have to try and circumvent that to even enter the grounds of the place, let alone try and do it. So yeah. 
which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after... Well, I mean, I think you were you were in town in London when um, they had their next prime minister. It, it is kind of amazing. I was in Argentina when the um, uh, big events happened in there in 2010, and then I was in the UK on the weekend of the Knives, of the Exchequer first resigned on that Friday, I believe. And then I was there for that. I was in Parliament doing a tour the next day. And that night would be the night of the long knives when they'd have the vote on fracking or whatever that destroyed Liz Truss' premiership. We did get out of there while she was still prime minister. So I I was the a, a rare American that was in the UK during the 55 days or what have you of, of Liz Truss. Country should be afraid whenever Bruce comes to visit us. <laughs> I think <laughs> I will. I will wreck your government. I will. I will say this. I was amazed that we were able to tour the parliament and the the, the presentation of the parliament and everything like that is great. Uh, and it's, then it's a, they just clean tour. up and and they're able to conduct their business at night or in the afternoons or whatever. Um, the other thing to say. In context of what we were just talking about, about Boris Yeltsin, about I'm Boris Yeltsin, I'm um, I'm in uh, I'm in you know I'm still in my fall of USSR podcast. Not a, not a dissimilar comparison. <laughs> you're right, Boris Johnson. Um, two things of context, none of which really extricate extricate him, but two things of context. One is that. Uh, American politics, so different from UK politics. And that's probably why I made my predictions. I see a person of such like personality, charisma, and um, weirdness as well, but we have that here, and the ability to get, to get popular votes with that from certain people, particularly his ability to pull labor votes, which so you have the two parties, the big parties are conservative and labor in the UK. And I just thought, oh, that's a tremendous asset. What I wasn't thinking about is that it's not an American system where you vote for president. It's a UK system where not only do you vote for your member of parliament and that those members elect the prime minister, so you don't have direct control over who's going to be prime minister, but also there's a lot of little committees and a lot of, you know, a prime minister does not get full control, particularly in that conservative party where you have the 1922 committee that can like stab him in the back at any time. So uh, yeah. he ran afoul of that. The second thing, just to know quickly, is like because because I think at first people will be like, oh my God, they're having parties in parliament. But that alone, if it was not a COVID time, Westminster is full of drink. There are like oh, a yeah. dozen bars in Westminster. I have a Very whole book on my shelf here of uh, these this uh, Chris Moncrief about wine, women, and Westminster telling these crazy <laughs> stories. And um, on a tangent, a story from this book, a Labour member of Parliament in the 1980s, who was so, he just liked to cause a lot of trouble. The Palace of Westminster, where the Parliament meets, is on the edge of the, the Time River. And it really is on the edge. It's it's, it's The right building the is, is yep. right there. I mean, must be, he stood right there, had a big thing of scotch in his hand, and as the boats would go by, he's like, that's right. You're bloody right. It's all free. And they give us as much as they want of it. And it just just trying to cause a scandal because everybody thinks that. Like, oh, they're getting I didn't mean, you know, they have to pay something for their drinks, but it's cheap. It's not unusual, the celebration itself. It's just that it happened during COVID. But things have changed in British politics. You now, most polls appear to be favoring labor at this point. By a massive amount. And to be fair, the polls have favored, favored Labour for quite a while now. You can mm -hmm. even say that, um, so Boris Johnson had his last election in 2019. He won mm -hmm. what's, what, the, what the Brits would call a stonking majority, where, <laughs> as you mentioned, he took, a lot, he took an awful lot of seats out of Labour in what would be called the Labour heartland. It used to be called what was called the Red Wall. And um, he managed to flip a load of those seats. But the UK election system is very fickle. It's They use the first-past-the-post system, I think similar to your, to yourselves. Mm -hmm. But the difference being is that there isn't just two political parties that we hear about. There are lots of small parties. And it's very possible for most MPs to get elected with only 30 to 40% of the vote. And then the rest mm -hmm. of the vote gets scattered among, well, primarily to the, to the other party, but then also scattered among the likes of, if you're in Scotland, it'll be the SNP. If you're down in the south of England, it could be the Lib Dems. And 
whatever radical right-wing party is is currently is currently iterating in that region so with all that Boris Johnson while he might have a huge majority Liz Truss took that majority and now the third prime minister has also taken that majority it's very thin it's very wafer thin and come the next election which is mandated to happen by at least January 25 but everyone believes will happen sometime next year probably around the fall um that could flip right back and they're actually talking about a a Labour majority and victory the size of what Tony Blair managed to get back in 97. And an awful lot of the comparisons are being made between Keir Starmer and Tony Blair because Tony Blair came in after a couple of decades of Labour not winning elections and spending an awful lot of time talking about issues that would be considered quite left-wing for the mainstream British public. But Mm -hmm. Tony Blair came in, brought them back to the centre and managed to win a big majority that lasted for a long time. I think three, three he was Prime Minister for three terms before um three terms uh, three terms uh, before 97 2001 and then 2005 yeah and then gordon brown came in and lost in 2008 after the crash but keir starmer has a similar personality in or sorry a similar profile in the sense that he'd be considered quite centrist especially compared to who they had before which is jeremy corbyn um and he is he's always been teased and made fun of in the media and the British take they, they don't for they don't, for a country that have the oldest democracy effectively in the Western world they don't take politics very seriously. Most po- most politicians are risible characters, and most <laughs> most policies will you know be talked about on the news, but in every other form will be made fun of, and he's considered very boring. I think they want a serious politician, a serious prime minister who understands uh, with a careful, competent, confident plan to lead Britain through this crisis. That's the profile everyone <laughs> says. I can't believe we're going to have this boring man as a, as a, as our next prime minister. needs to answer who made the original contact? What was the nature? But I think a bit of boredom is what the UK really wants and needs at the moment after what has been effectively chaos. Come forward and answer those questions. I think they should make a statement. In- they haven't been able to get any stability. I mean, just we we probably skipped over the Liz Trust thing a bit too quickly, mm-hmm. but just to give a bit mm-hmm. of context. So after Boris resigns there was a election for party leader. And again, this is probably a particular quirk that comes from the parliamentary system. It's nothing like a primary in the US where they have to effectively get votes off the public or at least the public that support that party. It starts off in the parliament and the members of parliament whittle down a list of candidates down to two. And then those two are the ones that go and seek um, seek approval from the party membership. And the party membership is also incredibly small compared to the size of the electorate. And also, nobody knows who, what the profile of the Conservative Party members are. A lot of people suspect that they're quite old, they're quite educated, and they're quite wealthy compared to the rest what of the What are the requirements for becoming a member? Uh, £20 annual subscription, as far as I know. That's it. Yeah. So, but that is probably enough to cut off a lot of people who don't want to pay that. So it's... It's not even... <laughs> I think it's it's more the idea that a lot of people would would rather cut off their hand than carry a Conservative Party membership card. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So they're <laughs> kind of like here with the primaries. It's a little different, but primaries you'll get... I lived in a town. I actually ran in a town that had 14,000 voters. And in a Democratic primary... You'd be lucky to get seven hundred. Yeah, so it's similar here. They're not. They don't have to be. Well, we do. We do register. We're not members, but um, although the DNC has started some program like that, send us money and renew your membership. But the I'm sure the RNC does the same. But uh, yeah, so that was a very small election that that ended up picking with Liz Truss. And when I said that there was two candidates whittled down, it took an awful lot of coalitions and faction fighting to come to those two. Mm-hmm. And Liz Truss was considered the poster child of the libertarian economic wing of the party, of the of the Tory party, of the Conservative Party. And her and Kwasi Karteng, who came in as her chancellor, they had written a book a couple of years before, basically saying that Brexit was the opportunity to make the UK the Singapore of Europe. Effectively, what they meant was very low taxes, attracting a lot of corporations and a lot of um, stock trading and financial services to London. Mm-hmm. And within the 55 days that they had, they released one, it wasn't even a full budget. It was an idea for a budget. And after they released that, 
the uh, UK bond market's completely tanked. The value of the pound crashed. And within a couple of days, Liz Truss and Quasi were both gone. <laughs> and they went back to the uh, back to the Conservatives. They asked them, the MPs got together and said, let's not have a proper vote this time. Let's just give it to Rishi Sunak, who was Boris Johnson's um, chancellor before he decided to knife him to, to get rid of him during the push. And it has to be pointed out that Rishi came from nowhere when Boris elevated him to be cha- to be chancellor. And um, chancellor is effectively the minister of finance in the UK. Um, I'm not sure what the US equivalent would be. Uh, Secretary of Treasury. Or, uh, Treasury, uh, but, but not also, as powerful. To be honest, not as powerful. Yeah, the no. chancellor has this. They have because, as you mentioned before, they also work in Parliament, so they have the they have control of the entire budget process for the UK. So it's a very mm-hmm. important, very powerful position. And Boris basically picked him because he didn't want anyone who could be a potential rival to take the position. Oh no! Look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to be pointed out that he was he was a nobody and he didn't have much political experience. And he's been in place for over a year now, and it has to be said that he has not done a good job. He has made a lot of blunders. He's made a lot of poor decisions. He's gotten into an awful lot of fights with a lot of ministers that basically just don't respect him, don't fear mm-hmm. him. And it seems the 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 attitude around the Conservative Party seems to be that we're going to get absolutely destroyed in the next election. And what we are what we're thinking about is what we're going to be after that. And that's effectively the battle for the soul of the party that's going on at the moment. And it's happening between the groups who effectively don't who think that they're doing badly because they're not right wing enough versus the old fashioned conservatives who think that they need to go back to a more centrist kind of David Cameron style style approach to 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 policy and electorate. And the biggest issue has been immigration. I mean, it's 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 the political issue of most of the Western world at this stage. It's even affecting Ireland now as well. We've had a couple of, of flashpoints politically over that with the last couple of weeks. But specifically in the UK, Boris Johnson came up with an absolutely ridiculous idea that he would send asylum seekers to Rwanda to be processed. Mm-hmm. This was written on the back of a napkin and then promptly filed away. But for some reason, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have allowed it to become an actual policy. They haven't thought about whether or not this would be approved by the UK Supreme Court. They haven't thought about how practically it would work. And they also haven't thought about how this would fit into international law. So while the policy has been chased and tried to be implemented for about two years now, and I think they've spent about £70 million on it, not a single asylum seeker has been sent to Rwanda because effectively the plan is illegal. And Rishi Sunak, for some reason, has decided to pin his colours to this mast to try and get it through, to try and basically he's trying to keep the two sides of the Conservative Party together. And when you mentioned those those wild committees and groups that have a lot of power, Mm -hmm. the most recent iteration is a a cohort of five particular right wing groups who call themselves the five families (laughs) who tried (laughs) who tried to mount a coup, a parliamentary coup to to scupper. Um, Rishi Sunak's ability to pass the latest Rwanda law, mm-hmm. but they didn't have enough power. He managed to scrape by just with enough MPs. The law passed, so he's in place. But effectively, that will decide how far his he goes next year. So I guess that also a major difference between the UK and the US is that the Prime Minister can ask for election anytime. He just has to get into a car, drive over to see the newly crowned King Charles III, ask him for an election, and then they go. They don't have to wait for a specific term limit. The only thing that that stops him is it has to be at least every five years. So he can't wait too long. But if Rishi can't keep this this mad bus of conservative MPs who all think that they're going to absolutely lose their job at the next election together, that could happen as early as the spring or probably in the summer. Yeah, talk a bit about that. So we're not we're not as used to that because we have the calendar. The calendar rules here, law rules here. So it's every four years, presidential election, no matter what. Every two years, congressional elections, no matter what. There was a time where there's some, um, if you go way back in history, the 19th century in America, th- there was a time when congressional elections did vary and we would have, <laughs> they would be all over the place. But that was all, uh, that's all been now a matter of routine. Everybody's on the same day there when you get to that 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 would seem weird for americans like i get to pick when i have an election and the famous example is margaret thatcher right after the falkland war victory not enormous never really enormously personally popular i think that's what people don't realize about margaret thatcher not never a a person of huge poll ratings but right after a successful conflict standing up to Argentina, uh, she calls the election and, of course, wins. Yep. I mean, 
components are also a disarray. So that can be used as a tool. What are the factors here, though? As we approach 2024, I've heard labor people saying, we think we're going to win this election, but we don't know when it's going to be. Some people are having to spend monies anyway. Like, I'm going to run ads in the spring, whether we have an election or not. If we don't, Ah, I'm going to... There's the big difference now. So um, the the UK system is quite controlled in terms of Mm -hmm. what spending political parties can do. So political parties can't buy airtime on television to run ads unless it's they they actually get specific slots during election times that they like um, three minutes of of video before the six o'clock news Mm -hmm. and each party will get the same. And that's it. You're not allowed to buy airtime. You're not allowed. There's there's restrictions on political campaigning. Um, in the locality. So while you can drop physical printed leaflets into mailboxes, there's restrictions on how often they do them. There's restrictions on where you can get the money to pay for them. And there's restrictions uh, on uh, what, what they can say. So they can't, you can't say vote for me. You uh-huh. can say, here's some information that you, that you could find useful. But most of the picture, most of the frame <laughs> is a picture, is a photograph of who will be the candidate. So it's it's quite controlled and it's quite, it's quite contained. So when it comes to Labour getting ready for the next election, the most important things you need to do in the parliamentary system is have your candidates selected. Mm-hmm. So who, who's going to run? And most political parties will have that done at two years after the the, the last election. So you'd, you'd be in place for about three years before there'll be before you'd actually have to run. And then you'd have your local your local party system basically up and running, ready to go. So yeah, it could. But if the difference being this time is that Rishi Sunak can't call an election from a position of power not there's like i mean i am looking at my crystal ball here unless he finds that a, a mountain in wales is actually made of solid gold and the country, all the country's ills are solved and um, rishi sunak is effectively Ooh. only going to be able to call an election from a position of weakness hello all eric rivenus with the most notorious podcast here each week i interview an author or historian about a historical true crime tragedy or disaster Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So he will have to go either in January 2025 when he's mandated to do so or whenever he loses the support of the House of Parliament and has to go over and ask the the king for an early election. 
Yeah, so so the it's really all up to him, although there are certain circumstances. For instance, he could obviously lose the support of his own party. Or if I am not mistaken, if 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 he puts forward a very significant bill like a budget or something large uh, and it doesn't pass the speaker or someone could rule you're not really a government. Well, that's the thing, actually. So the UK, for all their talk of being the oldest democracy, have never actually written mm-hmm. it down into a single nice handy book like the <laughs> Americans and the Irish have called constitutions. They do say they have a constitution, but it exists in 700 years of law. And it's always very, ch- and sometimes it's pretty vague as to how it's supposed to be interpreted. And I've heard it referred to as the good chap policy. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it only works if everyone is acting as a good chap. So the thing that makes you prime minister is the king asks you to form a government. That's it. Um, the king, if Rishi Sunak was to be declared invalid by parliament, so they could have a, a motion of no confidence and declare him that he doesn't have the support of the house, the king could call a special committee together and ask for advice and then decide that he has to choose another prime minister. But that would be a constitutional crisis of the order that the UK has never actually experienced. The good chap policy has held up thus far. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. the closest they came was when good old Boris was refusing to go. He, He had in a concession of about 12 hours, he had all the senior ministers quit, but he had, he was actually trying to replace them as they were quitting to try and like, I think he, Rishi Sunak quit to try and um, generate an election and, and to get Boris out. He just replaced him with another, um, another chancellor of the exchequer a day later, that chancellor quit because <laughs> more, more revelations about Boris's misconduct came out. And then that was the final straw that Bar- Boris realized he had to go, but it's very, it's very flaky. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very, yeah, it's you just you never know what the UK system is going to bring you. It is actually funny. David Cameron, when he went into coalition with the Lib Dems back in 2008 or was it 2000? It was 2008. He as part of that deal, they brought in what was called a fixed term parliament to basically bring in a law similar to the US that you would have elections every five years. And that's it to try and take away that advantage that Margaret Thatcher was able to use back in the 80s. It It lasted two governments and then they got rid of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it wasn't really working and they they used it i mean so you've had elections 2010 um it was 2005 then it was 2010 then it was 2015 then 2017 because Theresa may tried that snap election we had talked about it a very older episode and then 2019 where that was another that was another snap election yeah yeah, and I was, uh, and I think at first they using that procedure, Jeremy Corbyn was able to deny it. Uh, oh, let's talk a bit about Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer because on the Labour side, and again, the two main parties in British politics are Conservative and Labour, but there are a number of smaller uh, parties uh, on the Labour side. One of the things that Keir Starmer has been able to do politically is to get rid of well first of all they've actually kicked jeremy corbyn out of the party at this point they have but yeah. He, so yeah he effectively has purged the the corbyn insurgency but it is worth noting that that corbyn insurgency was always very shaky mm-hmm. so he never expected to be made leader of the party and everyone always questioned whether or not he actually wanted to be prime minister i mean only jeremy will know the answer to that question but um they they never really clicked with the majority of MPs the the leadership under Corbyn they never they tried their best to bring in the kind of um, staffers and mm-hmm. and political system that you have when you run a political party in in such a large country but it was always very shaky and it didn't turn out to be that big a job when Keir Starmer was elected after um so after Jeremy Corbyn lost that second subsequent election to Boris when they lost a lot of Labour seats that everyone had assumed were solid. Um, he basically had to resign. He had to step down. And they did put forward um, another young lady. I can't remember her name, but she was effectively going to be the Corbynite. She didn't win. Keir Starmer won quite comfortably. And after that, he became a proper, he began a proper process of purging them, um, rebuilding the party. It, it even went down to, to like the local selection process that I mentioned before. When you're getting ready for an election, you, the local area are the ones who choose a candidate. Mm. But I've seen this happen 
for, firsthand. This can be very controlled by the head office to the point that you can get a note from London saying, like, you could be holding your Manchester election and they don't want the local effective Communist Party guy to go and run for the Labour Party. So they'll say, oh, you have to have an address on this particular street. And lo and behold, there'll be some barrister who has been chosen by the party to be the candidate in the safe seat. And he'll happen to have that address. So, oh, OK, well, that rules say we have to pick him. And it's yeah, that's that's again coming down to the system in the UK being quite quite malleable, quite flexible, and and yeah, quite 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 open to people imposing the kind of rules that they want onto it like that. He has he's 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 I, he really has purged it. And it's not just that in the attitudes of most of the public as well. I think the Corbyn experiment had its run, but they never really hit home. They never managed to catch enough of a, 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 a not enough of the UK public to get any any way close to getting into government. But a big part of that help has been the collapse of the SNP in Scotland. I don't. Yeah, let's that talk about that. Through do um, so, Stormer is in a good position for the election, partially because of of what's going on with the Scottish National Party. Yeah, so up until like in Gordon Brown's time, he was a Scottish um, prime minister. He the Scot the, the Labour Party could rely on a solid 50 seats from Scotland out of, mm-hmm. out of 60. That was huge. That was a big solid block that could really get you over the line in the times that the Labour Party managed to get into government, which in the 20th century and 21st hasn't like Harold, been often. Harold Wilson relied on that block. Callahan relied on that block. Um yeah, Atlee most likely relied on that block. Yeah, but um, the SNP managed to basically, it was a very confusing time. So the SNP campaigned in a referendum for Scottish independence. They lost. Um, the, the Unionist side, the pro-British side won. But immediately after that, the Scottish public rewarded the SNP for losing the referendum by giving them nearly all the seats in Scotland <laughs> for Parliament. And they had that for about 10 years up until, well, they still have them at the moment. They they still haven't surrendered them. But the polls are suggesting that that it is quite weak. It, it goes back to that that point I was making about how you only need about 30 or 40 percent of the seat of the of the votes to, to win. It looks like that might swing just far enough back in Labour's favour to give them that block. And like it's confusing. So what has changed in in the Scottish public opinion that would make them want to give up this very specific party? Like, I mean, of all the political parties in the world, one that that has such a singular goal, mm-hmm. Scottish independence. I mean, it is a massive coalition of all sorts of economic and and socio-political interest groups all just wanting this one thing. Have Scotland decided that they don't want that? No, actually, the polls are, are the same. Scot- Scots are still about half and half on whether or not they want independence. What's changed is, is that the SNP itself has, has been hit by scandal. So Nicola Sturgeon um, was the first minister in Scotland for an awful long time, and she was very successful, very charismatic, one of the UK's best politicians, frankly. Um, she quit all of a sudden um, last year, or sorry, at the start of this year, and it turned out that there was a police investigation ongoing into about six hundred thousand pounds of money that was raised by the SNP that effectively disappeared and may have been transferred into the personal account of her husband. And I mean, I, I I don't know if we're going to have many Scottish lawyers listening to that, so please don't quote me if if, if that is still a, a legal case. But effectively, that's what the scandal played out as. And since then, um, the 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 leadership that has taken over since just hasn't been strong enough. They've been caught quite badly with um, a lot of political fighting over laws around um, trans rights. So I think Scotland tried to pass a lot effectively becoming more progressive in, in that space than what the rest of the UK have. But that kind of tore the party a little bit down the middle in terms of people who supported it and those who didn't like it, which is which is a problem when you have such a big umbrella umbrella party. And they just haven't they just haven't been able to um to hit it in the polls. So it looks like Keir Starmer should be able to rely on about forty to fifty of those Scottish seats again, which will be a huge boost um when it comes around to it. Yeah, and because then, uh, the the SNP themselves, I mean the members of parliament it seemed like were fairly on the more liberal side of politics, but the the SNP itself has some conservative people. And I know they had that recent presidential election to to oh I say presidentially there I go again um a party leader election to replace uh, Sturgeon but uh, seemed like a lot of different political uh, voices there it wasn't just all usually so yeah. there was one the the second candidate actually the the one who just managed not to win and um, mm-hmm. she was effectively a Christian conservative and then um she just she just barely got beaten by effectively Nicola Sturgeon's um protege I can't remember his name right now Yousef but so though can't remember. Yeah, so they're not going into a good position there, and um, Labor's um, 
running strong. Uh, how are the Liberal Democrats, the, the the smaller party, doing? Sure. So the Liberal Democrats are a UK-wide party as well. Um, they are like the same as Labour and the Conservatives. They've been around an awful long time. They're the part of their what's left of the party of Gladstone mm-hmm. back in the 19th century. They were in government with the Conservative Party in 2008 under... Um, oh, Clegg. Nick Clegg, yep, who is, um, everyone might be happy to know, one of Facebook's main executives now. So <laughs> oh, great. Um, he, <laughs> he he brought them into government, but then they got very badly beaten and shrunk. I think the term that we used at the time was that the Conservative Party ate their vote and managed to come back with a majority in the next election. They have never really staged a comeback uh, to any any way close to that. They But the thing to remember is that they're a very regional party as well. They do very well in certain parts of the UK. So especially mm-hmm. up the very top of Scotland and around the islands of Scotland, they, do, they tend to do quite well. And then down in the southwest of the UK, of England and down around Devon and Cornwall, they do tend to do quite well there. So while there isn't any feeling of a massive insurgency on the part of the, of somebody wanting a party that isn't Labour or isn't the UK or isn't the Tories, there is a good chance that they will gain a few more seats than they had previously just by doing well in those local constituencies where they have traditionally done well. It's interesting. Yeah. In the last uh, Australian election, so they had these groups that came out called the Teal Party. They had the Teal Party, which was like, we'll mix green. They're kind of green party values, but servicing an area that's conservative and conservative, a lot of other other politics. And it, it sounds like the liberal Democrats, well, they seem to be like the rural liberals. Effectively, I mean, they do do well in certain parts of London, but the Liberal mm-hmm. Party is for, is is for the for the people who think that you know constitutional reform is the most important thing for the UK. Kind of policy wonks like mm-hmm. you and me, I would say. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, it it like when it comes down to hard hitting issues, most people don't don't think of the Lib Dems as being the ones to solve the problem for that. You normally flip to one of the two main parties, and then you have um, Reform Party this year. You have there's a new yeah, they're not new to be honest. What they are mm. is the third iteration of UKIP. Uh, th- this is Nigel Farage's um, baby. I don't know if he is actually a member. He always kind of quits between being the leader or being a media personality. Nigel Farage um, was a massive personality in, in UK politics who effectively got Brexit over the line. Um, it was him who pushed for it for a long time. It was him that basically scared David Cameron into into pushing it forward as a Conservative Party policy in terms of having a vote. And then it was him that was always nibbling at the heels of the likes of Boris Johnson and those uh, those other Conservative Party um, leaders to try and he, he to push them to a right wing version of Brexit as well. So after. So after the Brexit election, you couldn't have a party called the UK Independence Party that was a single focus issue party to get Brexit because they had Brexit. So after that, he created a new party called the Brexit Party to get Brexit done, as was the word for so long over those years when they were negotiating it. That was done. The deal was done. So you can't have a Brexit party anymore. But he ain't going nowhere. So they've created the Reform Party. (laughs) So effectively, the way to think about the Reform Party is it's a political party that exists in the same space as one of the more kind of radical um, version of of the Republican Party. So I guess the Freedom Caucus, is that what you guys have over there to kind of of keep them honest in a sense? In the the Congress um, that exists, they don't have any presidential influence, but in the Congress, it absolutely fiscally conservative, uh, probably socially conservative as well, but it doesn't want to spend any money, essentially, <laughs> even stood up to Trump. So Trump is 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 small L liberal on a lot of uh, certain issues, uh, the infrastructure, Social Security, maybe not Medicare as much. They would even stand up to him. Freedom yeah, Caucus it, is it, kind of... It, it wouldn't be a direct comparison then, but I guess the Reform Party exists basically to try and keep the Conservative Party right wing. That's about what their main mm-hmm. role is. They do think of themselves as a real political party. They stand candidates in local elections, so they may be in, in, in councils across the UK. I think this group that used to be UKIP used to be a Brexit party. I've only ever had one MP, and that MP was was a was a Conservative um, parliamentarian who switched. Switched, okay. Switch. So they they will exist in these local elections. They will steal votes from the Conservative Party if they're competing mm-hmm. against them. But I mean, uh, your odds on actually getting one of them elected to Parliament is small. Let's talk a bit about Brexit. Uh, so Brexit yeah. happened. The UK is a separate country from the European Union. It is no longer a member. How is it going? 
And I hear things that maybe some people are having second thoughts, even some Brexit supporters. The deal is done. So one of the last sticking points between the deal between the UK and and the EU was over Northern Ireland. So I can I can talk to that very clearly. So effectively, mm-hmm. the island of Ireland has two states on it, the, the Republic of Ireland where I live and then North of Ireland, which is still part of the UK. So it's 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 a small part in the northwest and sorry, the northeast. And since the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed to end the Troubles, there, which was a, a conflict between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, um, as part of that agreement, there have to be open borders between the North and South. We effectively have to act as one economic unit so that people can live whatever life they choose to live, effectively, is the point. Brexit was a big problem because you can't have an open border um between two trade between two entities that exist in different trade categories so they couldn't really figure out what to do with it it was one of the reasons why we had all those elections in in 2015 and 2017 and a deal was finally done where effectively the north gets to sit in both so it is both in the eu trading block and it is in the uk trading block effectively um, it could be a, a fantastic economic opportunity for the North, but they're too caught up in their own unionist politics about not wanting to be at all different from the rest of the UK that we don't have time to go into here. But um, but I know that, for instance, if you look at it from a party standpoint, the DUP, the Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, DUP people should think of them almost like Republican conservatives in a southern state in, in the US. Very anti-abortion. Yeah. Very conservative on maybe not on everything, but I, I've heard the members interviewed. They do not like this the deal that was arranged over Northern Ireland. They don't like the, to put them in context. They're effect they they're members of the Protestant community in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and quite and quite specifically, they're they're usually um, they usually have backgrounds coming from what would be the Presbyterian, um, very conservative right wing. Um, Christian values, mm. but also most importantly, unionists. So they don't want anything to change between their relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom because they'd be afraid that any step towards moving away from the UK is a step towards moving to join the South, which by their very modus operandi, they can't they can't abide. So even though economically this deal might in fact be a good one, they can't co- they can't conscience they can't allow that to happen be- in their eyes because it's because it would be a step towards the south and they just can't have that effectively that doesn't matter they've been ignored um there isn't a local government in northern ireland because the two parties and um, between nationalist and unionists haven't been able to agree on a couple of different things most importantly this thing but everyone's just ignored them the deal has been signed with london and um, dublin is on board so they're just being ignored and in terms of the brexit's impact for the rest of the uk and the mainland um it's it's kind of it's hard to do like i mean how can you how can you explain what causes inflation to spike mm-hmm. a couple of percentage points more than it might have done before or after? I mean, I I, I don't have enough of an, of an economic understanding to fight one way or the other. I don't really I don't have enough skin in the game to argue for mm-hmm. or against Brexit. Mm-hmm. It is. Absolutely. If you were if you were a Brexit supporter, you're you could find reasons to say that it that it did well. If you're a rational Brexit supporter, you'll probably look at it and go, maybe it wasn't such a good idea and things are a little bit harder being outside this massive trading block and having these extra restrictions to our trade that we used to have. And if you are someone that didn't support Brexit, you're probably going to say, yeah, it was a bad idea and it's not going well. It like it, it hasn't been a catastrophe for the UK. There hasn't been a massive economic crash people's like they've had the same economic hardships that a lot of the western world has had since mm-hmm. since the invasion of ukraine and the, uh, of ukraine and the different energy energy things associated with that but i i can i can foresee in about 10 to 20 years a movement starting to rejoin the eu and if that does happen i feel most sorry for the eu bureaucrats who will have to start the whole the whole party <laughs> over again to try and determine i think the and, and it's it's something that's it won't be discussed in in politics before then because it is still a live issue and a toxic issue. Like Keir Starmer basically says, the deal is done. So a labor win will not change, uh, not no. immediately change Brexit. Yeah, I don't even think like never mind immediately under Keir Starmer it won't change. It's um, you'd be talking maybe two two prime ministers' time if they were to have it like that, mm-hmm. or or who knows what the Conservative Party will come back with. But yeah, no, it's it's and it is it's tied up in things with immigration rather than economics. So the UK still has a, a large number of people coming to the country effectively trying to apply for asylum and specifically now at the moment they're actually 
moving rather than rather um, through airports or through train or through the the channel tunnel train line or on the ferries they're actually getting into small dinghies and trying to go from the north coast of france to the uk and quite a few people are getting into trouble and there's a lot of loss of life there and also it's just a very messy and dangerous situation to have effectively thousands of migrants trying to traverse the channel the channel at all times of the year when there could be storms and this is keeping that issue alive that people say well we've had brexit but we're still having immigration so what's going on and that's one of the things that the that the, the that the tory party can't get together um i'd say keir starmer has played a very smart line he's basically said whatever whatever they're doing we'll do it better without being too specific because it is <laughs> such a tricky issue and such a divisive right. issue but he's even managing to attack um rishi sunak from the right he's basically said recently said that margaret thatcher wasn't too bad and i'll i'll do i'll do just as well as her when i'm when i'm in power so it's like he's got rishi sunak completely cornered on all sides trying to come in i call it political shearing that's just my definition of it but i think a very successful and a good sign that a party's probably going to win very successful politician is able to shear bill clinton when he ran against george hw bush was able to say on some issues you know you're not you raise taxes you said you wouldn't i'm not going to say i'm not going to raise taxes but you shouldn't have promised it on other issues much more liberal you know parental leave and, and things like that we're seeing that here it's crazy uh surrounding the events of 10-7 and the uh israel hamas issues that so you're seeing separation among the left in the uh, united states over uh, israel and hamas and uh, young voters and people that had supported biden now don't you know are are well, what are you doing supporting israel which others more moderate democrats say are looking at it and saying the u.s supports israel that's what we do we're their ally of course young people generally young people i don't want to i don't want to generalize loved being schooled by over uh, older moderate um <laughs> former hillary clinton voters and things like that i see it in the uk though and perhaps you could comment on it that uh while the tory party has its problems keir stormer is facing some some issues over say calling for a ceasefire having the parliament call for a ceasefire or not that vote went down the labor party has a particular it's particularly tricky um for keir stormer so keir stormer is himself jewish Mm -hmm. um, but the, the the reason that Jeremy Corbyn that we mentioned earlier got kicked out of the party was on accusations of anti-Semitism. So Keir, Jeremy Corbyn for for decades was an anti-imperialist Marxist representative who thought everything that the West and NATO did was bad, including supporting um, Israel. So he would have always been in, uh, very pro-Palestine, like mm -hmm. um he would he would refer to Zionism. He would re refer to genocide. He would use all those kind of words that that mm. anyone that would be on that side would use. And um, he toned it down a little bit, but not too much, when he became the party leader. And it was on that basis, effectively, that Ger that Keir Starmer was able to 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 push him out afterwards on accusations of anti-Semitism. They got a couple of different um, they had a couple of different reports and found a couple of specific allegations that they were able to use. Um, so he's been trying to walk a very fine line because he's aware that there is that kind of an anti-imperialist, anti-NATO base in his party. And I mean, this all like it 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 it, it, it effectively hasn't gone away since Iraq and the UK had an awful hard time politically after the the Iraq war turned out to be such a such a disaster for them Eff effectively um um the the campaign that went on afterwards just wasn't good and Tony Blair took a lot of that flack and the Labour Party was like well if you know if 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 we're going to be the our, if our leadership is the one that's the warmongers then we're going to have to try and change that by by being more activists and being more like that so I'd say when it comes to taking stances on things like what's happening at the moment in in Israel versus in Israel and, and Palestine, I don't think Keir Starmer is going to want to say too much specifically. I think he's going to revert to what you were saying, that Rishi Sunak is just doing it wrong and he'll do it better, but without actually getting into specifics about what that'll be. He'll talk about wanting to support allies and, and wanting to make sure that terrorism doesn't win and things like that. But he's also going to be very sure not to say things like, um, you know, to Benjamin Netanyahu, who is 100% right or anything like that. He's going to, he's going to try and toe the line as best he can. Yeah, it's a tough issue for on all sides, and it's it's especially tough because it's that line between well, you're supporting Israel, you're supporting the Jewish people, which almost well, unfortunately there's a 
small group of people that can't get behind, but most should be behind. Or are you supporting Netanyahu, which is a political thing? And yeah. and until the government there changes, which we could do a whole hour on Israeli politics, it, there's at least the poll numbers are showing that similar thing to Keir Stormer's situation is that uh, there's a government in exile in Israel just waiting for an election to, to vote Netanyahu out. And that would ease uh, liberal politics in the UK and in the US uh, would be a relief to Biden because it's it's Netanyahu, that figure that, that really angers people. Um, Trump, possibility. Possibility we could have a labor government and then Trump could be back in the presidency. You know, strange bedfellows there. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. But you're also seeing a little bit on the UK side of some politicians, like kind of looking at Trump's style and and say, hey, I could do some of that. And I, I, I know you could say that happened with Boris Johnson. I don't know if you agree. I think Boris kind of was an original guy doing that before there was a Trump in politics that, that anyone in the UK would know of. But you're seeing a few figures, and I'm thinking of Suella Braverman. What was she, Home Secretary? I she believe. was Home Secretary, yeah. And some of her just, I'll say the most outrageous thing, to even where Conservative Party members, or a lot of the Conservative Party members, didn't want her in there. And a few that supported her were like, nah, I want her in there, but I don't, I want her to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. That kind of goes back to um, that, that, that five family um, mm-hmm. grouping that we were talking about. She effectively was their representative. The, 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 like one of the most right-wing versions of, of conservatism that she can get. She was in there to try and, to try and wave their flag. And like you said, while she was in, government as a home minister, which effectively means you're in charge of immigration, you're in charge of the police, you're in charge of a lot of very important things in UK mm-hmm. government. She was saying crazy silly things like um I think the one that actually done her in was she accused the police of being bad because they didn't break heads during an anti-Israel rally in London or something. Which effect which as far as I'm aware was peaceful. Like it was yeah. it was it was it was a peaceful protest or rally and she and just on that basis in order to take a right-wing line a pro-israel line she said the police should have should have stormed them and to have the the minister in charge of the police criticizing the police on such a strange issue was just too much and she had to go um since then she hasn't done too great she's been a little she's been out of the news quite a bit which which probably doesn't suit her purposes which a lot of these people what they need is they need airtime and they need they need they need fuel for their for their for their personalities to get in there. I wouldn't be surprised if her goal, it rather than actually taking over any kind of leader position in the Conservative Party, is rather to try and get a job on um, a, a news show. <laughs> I I think that's that's right. more likely than than it is for her to see any kind of a coup. The UK po- political system is just too there's too many intricacies. There's too many checks to to allow someone quite as Trumpy as Suella Braverman to get in is, is my, my, my call. I mean, we could be I've talking heard about some prime minister, that, prime minister well, Braverman heard, next year. And I'll have to eat my hat, but um, no, no, not prime minister, but I, but I hear some talk that maybe they want a ghost ship or pirate ship conservative party. So the conservative party will be so beaten that people like Braverman maybe want that so that they can, Oh, now we got 130 seats. I can lead that. Well, that could be part of it. I mean, a lot of what the thinking is at the moment isn't about what they're doing in government for the next year, which is what mm-hmm. they have. It's about thinking what to do after whenever they're in opposition. And like you say, I don't know if they necessarily want to tank the party so it's easier <laughs> to take over, but they certainly are. They have their eyes on the prize in that sense. I think that's really narrow minded. I think that's kind of that's kind of missing the point. Like the the electorate are about to reject you for advocating for these policies that they don't like. Why would you double down? And <laughs> saying we're going to be the super, like the even more extreme version of that party, whereas the boring party leader is the one who's going to get a stonking majority, as they say. It just it seems very strange. I I would wonder. Yeah, I I I can't see that they actually see that as a path to power. I think that they just see that as a way to to take up political oxygen to 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 mm-hmm. to, to make waves in the political space rather than actually as as a way to get into government. I mean. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Maybe they are actually just 
that that's stupid <laughs> to think that that would be the way to get in because if they do do that then Keir Starmer is guaranteed to get 15 years of, of government <laughs> he'll be, right. he'll, be right. he'll be retiring at 65 with with you know gray hair and a, and a happy pension <laughs> the, the UK won't bring in that kind and of thing 15 years and no one will have ever gotten excited about him <laughs> exactly yeah well I mean I'm I'm perfectly okay with that I mean he people are calling him the next Tony Blair. One of one of Tony Blair's big problems is that he had a, such a massive ego. He basically thought it was all about him, and part of that was taking the UK into a war that it shouldn't have gone into in Iraq. I mean, we can get into the nitty gritty of it, but sure. it was it was Tony Blair that pushed for that more so than the rest of his party, and the the consequences that are, were still being felt by in the Labour Party up to the point that they had Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, Tony Blair can't even go to a book signing. Sure, there'll be yeah, protests, still, and that yeah, is so still, different. George W. Bush retired. He's at his ranch. He goes to baseball games. Um, most not people, that many books. <laughs> no, he paints. He paints. No, no. He there's actually a decent decision points. I will say okay. it is the decision okay. points, but he wrote it in a format that made it easy for himself a little, as a in terms of it, it's it's little snippets. Uh, decision points isn't bad, but um, I would like an update actually, but. There, but there is outrage about the Iraq war in a lot of quarters, and and it's interesting. I had a guest on before; he's one of the Bush cousins, and his theory is that it's been silent here, so it hasn't been outrage about the Iraq war. It's been repressed, and it shows in the Republican primary, and that's how Trump was easily able to defeat Jeb Bush using the Iraq war, the failure. What perceived yeah. as a failure pretty broadly now, but it, it's not the same blood and venom that in the UK politics just uh, destroyed the otherwise able Tony Blair. But you're right. Tony Blair had a little bit of a complex. Still, he still, has, think, yeah. he still thinks that he should be the next prime minister, I'm sure. <laughs> and there's this movie called The Special Relationship, which how factual it is, I don't know, but it, it dealt with it. It was kind of along the queen. It was kind of along that type of a thing. And it, it dealt with the relationship between Clinton and Tony Blair and Clinton being kind of a little wary of the guy like towards the end there, like he he really wants to go to war, like watch it, you know, these are ground troops. This isn't easy, you know? And, um, but yeah, it is interesting to see the two examples where in your country, there's been investigations and it's been just proven that it was a mistake. And here it's, I would, I would actually go with uh, this new theory that I have that it's repressed. It's repressed anger, but it's not public anger. It's not, we just buried it. The Democrats decided not to do a big impeachment over it or a huge investigations over the Iraq war because there were soldiers there and we pulled out eventually and then we pulled out of Afghanistan. It was caught up in the in, in 9-11 as well. Like it was, it was a different narrative over there, I guess. And also... You had um, Dick Cheney as the as as everyone's perception as the evil puppet master behind pulling the strings as well. <laughs> Lightning rod whereas, took yeah, some of whereas, the blame away from uh, Bush. Uh, Quail on for the father, Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, and Karl Rove for the son, but all admitted that they were lightning rods and they enjoyed their roles to some extent as taking away from the. So yeah, the media goes after them. It'll always be one of those things that strikes me. But, well, you know, it, the Iraq war separate from the Afghanistan, where Afghanistan, you know, had much more broader support here. Iraq was yeah. more the Bush decision. But, um, yeah, it, it just strikes me. That's why I like looking at politics, different side of the aisle. Anything that where you're like, my God, Bruce, we got to you missed this. I think we got it pretty well covered. I mean, yeah. it, it, the most important thing is going to see just how much, much of an election that Keir Starmer is actually going to get. Um, is he is he going to get that big mandate? And then most importantly, what kind of I like? I think the, one of the most interesting things is going to be: does he run in with a ninety day plan, that kind of thing? You know, mm-hmm. they've they've been effectively expecting to be in government for two years now. So, what changes are they going to bring in? Especially, and then also, especially in the context of like a post Brexit Britain, the, the the Conservative Party haven't been able to put any thought to that. They've been too busy one dealing with you know the massive oxygen suck that is Boris Johnson taking taking the air out of everybody else and then after that basically just trying to keep their government on whatever tiny stilts they've been able to to try and keep it up but I think it'll be really interesting to see what can happen I mean I wish them all the best there there are neighbors right across the water um 
It used to be the case, actually, that if the UK had a recession of 2%, Ireland would have a recession of 3%. Luckily, after Brexit, we've managed to disassociate a lot of that and we're a little bit more independent, a little more integrated mm-hmm. into Europe. But at the same time, um, I love the place. I go on vacation there every summer. I drive through Northern Ireland, which is a part of the UK often. So I, I really do wish them all the best. And then maybe once they get their own mad politics in London fixed, they can come over to Belfast and try and get that up and running. Because it'd be nice, to see, it'd be nice <laughs> yeah. to see the north of the country. Because that was true the last time we talked, the Belfast situation. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, no. it's, 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 it's like the, it's an absentee government. It's actually kind of disgraceful. Like they, they have members of, of Stormont, their parliament, who are getting paid as sitting representatives <laughs> for not going to work. I mean, I wish I had that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is it's interesting because when I observe British politics, they're always talking about, look, it's going to be up to what America does. And then you, to some extent in, in Ireland, it's like, let's see what UK is. You're dependent on it. I mean, you're, you're too close that this. The Irish Do a little bit. I mean, big. yeah, but uh, I think after Brexit, Ireland had a real. We did a lot of navel gazing. We we mm-hmm. tried to see just like how much can we be dependent on what they were doing, and we 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 stood up. We basically we had we got the EU to stand behind us and to make sure that the Brexit deal didn't hurt Northern Ireland. And I think after that, the UK, the Ireland has gotten a good bit, a good bit of separation from from what's going on in the UK. And also, frankly, their politics has been so nuts. It's been pretty easy to go. <laughs> let's not follow them anymore. Let's do our own thing. Great. Well, Stephen Byrne, any anything that you're looking to promote? I mean, we have the what, what M Politics podcast there. The What M Politics archive still exists. And um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I don't really tweet that much or X or whatever it is you're supposed to say now. Um, but I am actually working on another podcast series about AI and okay. hoping to release that sometime in the new year. So if you follow me at the Steve Byrne uh, on X or Twitter or whatever it's called, I will tweet about it there whenever it gets released. Okay, great. Let me know about that, and I can promote it on one of my special episodes here. And then we'll have you on probably before the next election, whenever they declare. (laughs) Yeah, sometime. Hopefully it'll be a nice summer election. Those ones are always nice. (laughs) All right, Stephen Byrne, thanks very much. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.